The sermon for the first Sunday of Christmas is a little bit different than my traditional messages. It takes place instead in four, a series of four meditations, which are reflections on some of our Christmas carols, some of our Christmas hymns, including some that are not as well known. So uh, for the recording of this sermon, you'll hear a clip from the hymn, and then my meditation. Each of the meditations runs about three or four minutes, and each of the music clips about 30 seconds. So enjoy. Of Christ. Sing of him. Singing is not superfluous to the life of faith. It's not just some optional add-on, although I didn't always believe that. I grew up in a house where singing was natural, or I should say, where singing was natural for my mom, <laughs> and it was kind of an embarrassment to me and to my brother because she could turn anything into a song. She's talking about the dishes, and I'm doing the dishes, and they're really dirty. Why don't you pre-rinse them? She could turn anything into a song. She was doing this all the time, even in public, because when something becomes habitual, you start to do it as a kind of second nature, and you're not thinking about whether other people are listening to you, which is great when you're a teenager and you're out with your mom shopping, especially in the mall during Christmas time, and she's just belting it away while you're trying to try on some clothes. It's humiliating. And so suffice it to say, I didn't always view singing as the greatest thing in the world, much less that it was central and essential to the life of faith. But then I found myself overseas as a missionary when I was 22, 23 years old, spending Christmas by myself, far from everything that I knew, all of the traditions that have been so much nurturing of my faith for years. The only Christmas tree that I saw when I was in Bangkok, Thailand, was this big blue thing downtown, straight out of Charlie Brown. You remember that part when they go and they see like the blue aluminum Christmas trees? I thought that was made up, but I found it there in Thailand. And I was just feeling so low and so blue throughout that season by myself, apart from my family, apart from my friends. And even though I was there as a missionary to bring good news to other people, I felt like I was the one who needed to hear the good news. And I remember it was Christmas Eve and I went downtown. I just wanted to be around other people, even though folks weren't really celebrating. They weren't even really aware that it was Christmas Eve. It was just December 24th. It was another day in that Thai Buddhist culture. But I managed to find an Irish pub down there downtown, get some fish and chips, and I remember I was just walking down the street when suddenly I hear wafting out of the doors of this building, this otherwise nondescript building, I'd stumbled upon a Thai church in downtown Bangkok. And while the words might have been different, the tune was so familiar, I was able to just wander in and sing along. Oh, come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. 
And in that moment, I realized singing is not just optional to the life of faith. It's right there at the very heart of things. And if I had been paying attention to my scriptures, I would have known this. We see this throughout the Bible. The Israelites, when they're delivered out of Egypt, what do they do? They sing. Uh, Hannah, when she learns that she is going to have a baby, what does she do? She sings. Mary, just like Hannah, except in the New Testament now, what does she do when she finds out she is going to have a child? She sings. St. Paul tells us, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Jesus sang with the disciples in the book of Revelation, that vision of heaven and of the end times. What are God's people doing surrounded around the throne? They're having nice, genial conversation with one another. No, they are singing. Oh, sing of Christ. Don't ever feel guilty. If you love to sing, Martin Luther himself said, next to the word of God, singing and music is the greatest gift that God has given to us. And so I learn again, as I've learned so many times since, mom was right. If we're going to sing our faith, we need poets who are able to put into words and into sentiment those expressions and feelings of the heart and the teachings of the faith. And see, thank God for poets, because poets are able to do what preachers can't. We preachers, we tend to be a little long-winded, all right? That's why it's so hard for me to do this today, to compress myself, but I'm going to do my best. Okay, I'm going to do my best. But we need poets because they're able to put it in such a pithy sort of way. A whole theology can be packed in just a few words, like the poet Yaroslav Vida does here, with just three words in that hymn, in that last stanza. I want to read that for you once again. He says, Can I, will I, forget how love was born and burned its way into my heart, unasked, unforced, unearned? Three words unasked, unforced, unearned. Pack a whole textbook of theology right there. Unasked. This is what in theological parlance we would call divine monergism. That is, it's God's one-way love. That unasked of him, he comes to us and chooses us. As Jesus told his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. This is what we mean when we talk about God's uh, grace saving us. To be saved by grace alone means that he comes to us even when we don't ask him to. He seeks you and me out and he comes down and says, oh, you are mine. But that second word then becomes important, unasked, unforced. Because some might misunderstand that to think, okay, so God is just forcing himself upon us and saying, all right, come on, come with me. Let's go like a father dragging his kid away. Come on, here we go. But that's not it. It's unforced. God's love is not coercive, but it's persuasive. Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians this way. He says that the love of Christ compels us. It is unforced. Instead, it is the divine wooing of the Holy Spirit through his word as God calls us, 
summons us to faith in him and through the power of the Holy Spirit induces us to follow him. It's unasked, unforced, and finally, it's unearned. Not on account of our own merit or worthiness does God love us, not because of all that we offer him, but because of what all he has offered for us. Again, this is the epitome of what it means to be saved, sola gratia, by grace alone, that now we have this unearned salvation simply received as a gift, as the greatest of gifts, and as the poet reinforces for us at the end of each of those stanzas, for me, for me. Such a babe in such a place, can he be the Savior? I never expected to see him there. It was this week, a number of years back, and I was going to a, a conference down in Indianapolis in between Christmas and New Year's. It was a Christian conference. It was, it was one of these things, a big gathering at the hotel and the ballroom, and hundreds of people were gathered together, and they were all singing happy, clappy songs, things that were supposed to make you feel really good inside. And there were all sorts of teachings, sort of some Christian self-help to kind of get you fired up. It felt like a little bit of a pep rally, to be honest. And after a while, it kind of wore me out. And so I decided I was going to go for a walk. I'm realizing this is kind of a recurring theme. I find myself walking on the streets of cities late at night. I'm not always the smartest guy in the world. But there I am. It was evening in Indianapolis, and I was walking through the streets thinking about where is God in all of this. And I came across a guy, and he was a homeless guy, I could tell. He had not a whole lot of things with him, but he had a backpack. He was pushing some things. Uh, he didn't look too beat up or worn out, and frankly, he didn't look like he was too world-weary. Uh, but he was just out there by himself, and it was cold. And at that time, I had been serving at a homeless shelter, and I got to know homeless folks and knew that sometimes they could be the best conversation partners. And so I said, hey, would you like to get a, a sandwich or a burger, go over to McDonald's? And he said, yeah, sure, why not? introduced himself, told me his name was Bobby. And Bobby and I, we found ourselves there at the McDonald's late at night and uh, just having a chat. And I come to find out that he was a, a person of faith as well, that he was in fact a, a really devout Christian. And as I was getting to talk to him, it seemed like he wasn't down on his luck or he wasn't somebody, he wasn't mentally ill. He was just out there on the streets. And I was like, Bobby, forgive me for asking you, but why are you out? Why do you live out here? You know, what, what's the deal? Like, it seems like, you know, you could go, you could get a job, you could have a house, all these things. And he says, you know what, Ryan? You see how much I'm carrying with me? I was like, yeah, I, can, I think I can count it on two hands. He said, yeah, that's right. See, I find that the more stuff I have, the more that it just clutters up my life. But here, out here on the streets, with the little that I own, I'm able to keep my eyes focused on the Lord. I thought, that's the most wisdom that I've heard all week. I didn't expect to see Jesus in that place. But there he was, 
And isn't that how he always is? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You're sure in a manger, in a stable? Could that be him on a cross? Such a babe in such a place. Can he be the Savior? He's always showing up in places like that. humans are inveterate climbers. It's deep in our nature that we are always trying to ascend higher and higher and higher. Maybe you remember that ancient legend of the father and son, Daedalus and his son, Icarus. Daedalus was a, a noted craftsman. He was a, a, a powerful craftsman. He was able to, to make pretty much anything. And so he was asked by the king, to make a labyrinth where they were going to keep the centaur. Lo and behold, Daedalus and his son Icarus himself were placed in the labyrinth afterward. Funny how that happens. But Daedalus, being a resourceful guy and a great craftsman, he was able to take some wax and some feathers that he found and made wings for himself and his son to escape from that labyrinthine prison. But he told his son, after he made him the wings, son, these will get us out of this prison, but there's only one thing you must not do. You remember this? Don't fly too close to the sun. And in typical sun fashion, he says, yeah, yeah, dad, okay, whatever you say. They get the wings, and sure enough, they are liberated from the labyrinth. They fly away, and Icarus just finds himself drunk on the power to be able to go higher and higher and higher until finally he does climb too close to the sun and realizes that now, like, uh, what was it, Wile e. Coyote, he's just flapping some wingless arms, and woo down into the sea he goes. The moral of the story, we humans are always trying to climb higher and higher and higher, but when we do, we fall lower and lower and lower. It's the irony of our situation, and it's still the case today that as we strive and as we work and as we try more and more and more, go, 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 do, 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 it leaves us in the depths, broken, wearied, tired. And I guess that's the irony of Christmas, the beautiful, magnificent irony of Christmas, that while we are climbing higher and higher, where is God going? lower and lower, as the hymn puts it. Come from on high to me, I cannot climb to thee. Cheer my weary spirit, O pure and holy child. This is what Christmas is all about. That in all of our striving, in all of our working, God says to you and me, child, come and rest. I am coming down to thee.
Amen.